0: Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with you every Friday morning with your favourite podcasting app or indeed Friday evenings on RTE Radio. My name is Dusty Rhodes. This is show number 915 and I'm joined as always by our editor in Chief Niall Kitson to chat to interesting people and look at the uh, big stories of uh, the week. interview this
1: week we were both just saying is amazing. It's a doctor who's gotten into levels of technology you wouldn't believe. Uh, fair to say, yeah. I, I sat down expecting one kind of interview and got uh, another entirely. So it's 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 a treat. Yeah, yeah. It's like
0: uh, kind of going off the, when when you're being forced to meet somebody. You go, oh, I don't want to see them. And then at the end of the night, you're going, wow, wow. I'm <laughs> I glad. Listen, we we'll get onto that in a few minutes. But first, uh, the big story of the week, I suppose, a kind of money, kind of tech is the uh, is the fall of Netflix
1: full of Netflix and the interesting reason for be- being given for it because uh, I blogged about this earlier this week in uh, on techcentral.ie and here's the short version. Netflix has started losing money. It started losing members for the first time ever. In the States it's gone from 348 million down to 220 million subscribers. That's a huge drop. And a couple of things have been sort of uh, ascribed for it, right? One is increasing competition, which makes perfect sense because we've got Amazon doing every bit as, as good slash better. We've got Disney Plus, who've taken an awful lot of high end content from Netflix, especially, you know, Marvel, Star Wars, uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, but for my money, pun intended, mm-hmm. I think they have increased the prices. To a ridiculous level for what you get, right? Uh, and related to that is the fact that they are blaming password sharing on the part of consumers. So it's not our fault that people are going back to work. They've got less time. They've got less disposable income because prices are going up across the board. It's actually because people are, get this, sharing content illegally, Illegally in inverted commas, mm. yeah, you, you know what I mean. Does that does that sound like a familiar defence by any chance? Uh,
0: it does sound. Uh, it does sound a fam, like a familiar defence. But tell me exactly what you're thinking.
1: Well, it's basically the argument TV stations were making about torrenting back in the day,
0: and the, the music like, music companies and
1: everyone like that. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 the same argument, and now we're starting to hear. It in streaming services, which I, I think would ridiculous.
0: I don't think so. I wouldn't I wouldn't equate them to being the same.
1: Okay. Uh
0: at all. Because um and maybe the password sharing is something that they're blaming it on. I'm not sure because God knows, they've known for the last ten years that people are sharing passwords left, right, and center, and mm-hmm. have chosen not really to do much about it, which they could do. Um they also don't seem to be doing very much about people watching in wildly different places. I know people who share uh, Netflix accounts between Australia and Ireland. <laughs> yeah, explain that yeah. being in the same household. And um, so, kind of they're, they're, they're lazy on the on their behalf. Yeah. Well, actually, well,
1: they, they, they did make an effort to. Yeah, they did make an effort to crack down on VPN usage. Uh, Mm. It hasn't been particularly successful. And if you go looking for a VPN on the market, almost the first thing they say is, you can access Netflix from any country. It's like, that's the top selling point on them. Um, So VPNs are still very effective. But Mm. yeah, password sharing has been around for as long as the service has. I mean, it's completely ridiculous to ascribe uh, their fall and force their fall and subscribers.
0: Yes, and actually, I think that's the one thing that hasn't really, that has always been a problem throughout the 10 years. Uh, The thing that has changed is that last year
1: they changed the pricing. Mm, Yeah, And now they're seeing the effect of it. Yeah, for me, the pricing has gone up and the amount of content worth watching has gone down, Mm. uh, particularly in genre cinema. If you look for the classic section, Uh, it's pretty laughable. Um, There's basically like a clutch of five-star movies, an awful lot of dross around it, and an awful lot of South Korean teen dramas. Uh, Yeah, which well, they're not for us. And stand-up specials, you know? (laughs) Stuff that's either been bought in uh, on the cheap or made very cheaply. There you go.
0: Listen, tonne of stuff to uh, get through uh, very quickly. The EU, yay! I love the EU at times uh, because they are now going ahead with this whole single charging socket for mobile phones. So where we have lightning on Apple products and USB-C on most others and then some other flavour of USB on, on on other phones. What the EU wants to do is to have just a single socket on all mobile phones. Um Sold within the EU, this is something that they asked the manufacturers to
1: look at and to implement themselves ten years ago, and they haven't done it. Well, we've had Micro USB doing an excellent job. That was the EU's first uh, first crack at it, and that was wonderful. Uh, And I suppose you know, USB C is a superior standard for data and for. Uh, charging, so mm. it does make sense that we we get an upgrade. Uh, if USB-C is the way of the future, then fine, let that be it. Uh, Apple's argument, as always, when it ha- with Lightning and with FireWire before it, and with the 32-pin adapter before that, was that if you change the way we do things, it's going to stifle innovation, which we know to be total bunk. Yes, uh, at this stage. Yes, thank um, you for saying bunk. <laughs> it's true though um, there, there's there's no defence for it at this stage no. uh, USBC everybody will be happy with it Europe make it happen please absolutely well they drafted the law last year it's just been
0: backed uh, by an EU panel and they're going to vote on it next month so we'll keep an eye on that for you in a related story uh, Tesla profits are up um <laughs> in a related story I should say really it's not so much about the profits but the fact that they they are not going to be doing mobile chargers (laughs) for their cars because <laughs> I said nobody uses them but you can buy it as an extra for 200 quid and Apple of course will look at that and go as an extra for 200 quid <laughs> wow that beats. well whatever it's it's
1: kind of, it's a bit useless to be honest because it's something well, that you what a big saving we need to get some monitors oh, in those things
0: Stop. They stop it's something you plug into a, a regular plug in your house and it'll give you two or three kilometres in an hour's charge it's, it's not great mm. um, what else now a uh, house in Sirius a, a censorious, is the Irish internet now something you've been looking into?
1: Uh Yeah, well, and this is just a very quick shout out mm. to something that I found online. If you go to cloudwords.net forward slash internet hyphen censorship forward slash hashtag map, mm-hmm. you will see something that's actually quite interesting. Uh, it's basically a map of the world and you hover over whatever country you're interested in, give it a click and it'll tell you the degree to which the internet is patrolled in that country. Um, Interesting little little piece of content I came across, but, you know, let's give it a mention and move on to something slightly more substantial. But if you want a picture of how the internet is policed globally, the access people have, the kind of speeds people have, it's certainly worth looking at.
0: Okay, cloudwards.net. And we will put the link for that in the show notes of whatever yeah. device you're listening to us on right now. Last story for now, uh, before we get into our interview for the week is uh, WhatsApp. So like everybody uses WhatsApp and then they've got this feature last seen with some people like it, some people love it, whatever. But And you're able to do various things with it, all right, uh, to mm-hmm. allow people. But it's a bit of a... Uh, kind of a, a everybody or nobody kind of a, a, a scenario. Do you know what I mean? It's really, Yeah, <clears throat> exactly. You, so you can limit it to, you know, only the contacts that you have on your phone or you just disable it altogether. And the problem is, um, and, and I know it from the mammy side of things, is that all the mammies are looking out to see when their little boys were last on uh, WhatsApp so that they'll know they're still alive.
1: Oh, Simple I tell you, that. my my mom loves that feature <laughs> because she will she will go text me when you get in from something. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, and I'd be home for like two hours, and I'd go, oh, cheapers, I should have texted home, so mom can just look at the thing and yeah. just go, oh, yeah, yeah. Now and I listen. still get the the message going. Yeah. Did you get home? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Try to shame me into. Replying. Exactly.
0: (laughs) And that's for us. And like, we're married men. It's not like
1: we're 16. No, (laughs) no. So anyway. Mommies never stop being mommies.
0: Exactly. If you have that problem, okay, uh, get into your privacy uh, settings on WhatsApp. If they haven't enabled it already, it's coming because you will be able to disable um, the last scene from specific contacts. And the setting you're looking for is uh, to sh- uh, show to my contacts except, Bump, and that's where you go in and you select stuff. All right, so that's our little tip of the week. That's the uh, view of the headlines as well and what's going on uh, around the world newswise. Nile, as always, thank you for keeping us up to date. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's TechCentral.ie. Tech Central. We're familiar with the idea of robotics in medicine through telemedicine and surgery, but what about artificial intelligence? Dr. Osnan Morales is director of the Surgical Artificial Intelligence and Innovation Laboratory at Massachusetts General Hospital in the States, and he spoke to Niall Kitson about his interest in technology and the goal of creating a collective surgical consciousness. He started by asking how a doctor gets into this level
2: of technology. So um, I have always been interested in technology since I was a kid. Like I grew up like watching Formula One every Sunday, and I was always intrigued about how much technology was put on those cars, and but also the the human element of the driver uh, being behind the wheel, and with a lot of technology being able to you know push the envelope. So that was quite natural when I was looking for uh, a, my, you know, future profession to be something that would involve, you know, my ha- hands-on plus like uh, technology. And that became, ended up to be surgery, right? Because with biology that I always like, plus like uh, engineering, I all came together with that. When I was in medical school, I was first um, exposed to minimally invasive surgery. is how we do the majority of the surgeries nowadays with that. And from that on, it was natural because I went to residency and then had very great mentorships at my my in Michigan State, uh, Johns Hopkins, and UC San Diego, especially when the surgical robots were coming to be introduced into the market. But it was not until when I came to uh, MGH and Harvard here in Boston that I came to the realization that it's not just by improving the hardwares that we're going to be really achieving uh, our ultimate goal, but will be by improving human cognition. And that's why artificial intelligence came quite handy. And one of the elements that was very unique about what we do in minimally invasive surgery by the fact that we always depend on an image on a monitor. So what I'm seeing, the assistant is seeing, the nurses, everybody, if I'm doing telemetering, people at distance are seeing the same thing that I'm seeing, is that because of a stable image, we could actually then leverage a stable image to teach machine learning through computer vision. With the goal that eventually the machine will be very well educated, if you may, uh, at a human level, that will become a second pair of eyes for us. So for us to start doing this uh, was about five years ago when just across the bridge from Mass General, uh, the Charles River, we have MIT. And I started working with Daniela Ross and uh, Guy Rosman. Uh, about how could we start using uh, machine learning and inferences from computer vision to start doing very simple basic segmentation of a surgical procedure. That kind of grew to the point that then we started getting publications and grants. And then it became a lab, uh, which is the Surgical Artificial Intelligence and Innovation Laboratory uh, here in Boston, which I'm the director of. And the, the goal will be that we will be Starting those for the basics from the segmentation to then making the machine being able to make inferences what's happening in a real time and perhaps predictions about either the pr- proper outcome or perhaps you a mistake might about to occur in the machine we precluded to uh, do that. That was one thing uh, that then we realized that although it's doable, Uh, we will need a lot of data. We will need a lot of uh, information that it shouldn't be coming just from Mass General because we need diverse data. We should be coming from all over the world. And then I start becoming more, how can I say, political and uh, start advocating through the societies. In the United States, we have a society called SAGES, which is our uh, minimally invasive society, which is the largest uh, society for MIS surgeons in the world by about 7,000 members. It was back then... When I was talking to Jeffrey Marks, uh, which was the president, when I came to the idea that we should have an artificial intelligence task force and um, the task force would be actually looking, how could we make surgical AI sustainable and scalable? And we came up with the idea that we have to have a very pragmatic platform on uh, three buckets. One are the foundational work, which is based on the, the data structure itself, the annotation of the data and the governance of the data. Then the other bucket was our uh, structural needs, a video acquisition framework, how to manage the data from its inception to its destructions. And then lastly, the knowledge dissemination, how we're going to be uh, you know, propagating the information that we get through publication, education, so on and so forth. And then we started back then about three years ago when we have a large and successful summit with engineers and physicians, both from academia and industry uh, to design the standards for surgical video annotation. The following year, we worked uh, on the data structure and the data use. And next year we're going to be doing one on the governance of the data.
1: So, Looking at your experience then to date um, in sort of looking to tap into your experience with uh, tele-mentoring and that sort of precision element um, of robotics in surgery. Um, from my perspective, it begs the question, when you're mapping what a procedure looks like, um, how do you come up with the compute power or the um, perspective to understand um, how well something is going in real time, say, uh, you know, putting together that fingerprint of what a procedure looks like. What sort of challenges have you found in bringing together those fingerprints and responding to the data as it
2: is being fed back? Yeah, first of all, um, it starts first with a good a protocol and a good annotation, right? Again, annotations, how we are labeling the sequence of the, vi- on the video, both the temporal component and the spatial component. Because of, with poor teaching of the machine, the machine cannot be better than, you know, uh, you know, its master, right? So f- first we start with good set of data sets. Second is a, a proper annotation about the, the events. And then next, then we train the machine and then the machine learns what's normal for that particular procedure, for that particular technique. Next step is then we feed that um, th- those videos to the machine and the machine reads about them. And if the, the probability of the sequence of events are following as expected, so this distribution of the log probability, we will create uh, numbers over time, which we're using a visual representation uh, by color coding with, Red is a very high probability and blue is very low probability. Anything between them is a mid probability to developed. And every single step was being mapped like this over time. So kind of create this kind of like a, um, you know, staircase uh, probability of each one of the steps over time. One day the procedure goes as expected and normal. The visual representation is very similar to the initial one. So it could have hundreds of those cases. They're going to look very similar. But if there is a deviation of the norm, which could be something that uh, we call adhesions or bleeding or a revisional surgery, and even sometimes something that the machine has not seen before, what the machine did on itself was to not recognize those uh, steps Uh, or those points uh, over time with a high probability, but going to a low probability, which changed the visual representation and gets much more like a hectic image. And that was an abnormal surgical fingerprint we called. So then imagine that a surgeon doing a given procedure should almost always have a similar surgical fingerprint, whereas something that became abnormal for either the surgeon is not well-trained or uh, like a a novice or a trainee, or there is a complication or unexpected event in the case, that would show, uh, you know, a deviation. This is what we have at the moment. But what we want to do is, as more granular we get with the annotation about teaching minutiae about the surgical procedure, we should be able to take those from steps of the operation to uh, sub-steps and then to tasks and actions. And then to the point that can start being able to quantify how well the surgeon or the trainee is actually executing its movements, or the decision-making through the procedure, and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, so so it sort of becomes a, 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 an instantaneous feedback mechanism as well, that you'll be able to map what was actually done with,
2: against the, the ideal as you have presented it in that fingerprint. Correct. Yeah. And then if you also want to put some triggers, right? Like for example, there are in every single procedure, has, we have a critical moments of the operation, right? A critical step, a step that you have, a, there is an inflection point that there is no more point of return. Right. And, uh, for example, when you decided that you're going to cut a structure or remove something like, right? and, uh, you always want to be, you know, removing, uh, you know, only the parts of the the, the tumor of the the tissue that needs to come out, then you don't want to be injuring the adjacent structures. Uh, A classic example that has become the the benchmark of research for surgical artificial intelligence is a procedure called laparoscopic cholecystectomy. This procedure is very well studied and is one of the most performed in the world. Uh, But at the same time, if uh, the surgeon makes a mistake by mistaking one, one structure from another, it could be cutting different ducts that could lead to serious complications. So, for example, when the gallbladder is ready to be removed, there is a, a duct called the cystic duct that goes directly to the gallbladder. You want to clip that one and cut that one. But there is a, this duct connects to other ones called the common bile duct and the common hepatic duct you do not want to be clipping or cutting those because if that happens, you may need, like I said, a larger operation. So over time, techniques have been developed. And uh, one critical moment of this operation that we call the critical view of safety is when we we have dissected the gallbladder hilum properly. And it can only see two structures going to the gallbladder, which is the cystic duct and the cystic artery. When you see that, you know that that's the right duct you want to you want to clip and cut. So we have already trained the machine to be able to, in real time, identify the critical view of safety. Of course, give and take some of the development based on the, uh, you know, our regional data, not just us, but many other like uh, industry and other labs have done as well. And then we can actually use my- uh, computer vision uh, to warn us to say, you have not achieved this critical portion of the operation.
1: Lastly, one thing that you've been particularly passionate about um, talking about as almost uh, an endpoint when it comes to AI is the generation of what you're calling the collective surgical consciousness. Um, now, uh, to me, this sounds a, a little bit like a, an oracle on a hill or something like that. But looking at what we know about AI at the moment, do you see it? relying on a steady stream of human input information from around the world, or do you see it becoming something more algorithmically driven and more autonomous?
2: Well, that's a fantastic question. And that's like a a topic that I'm a huge enthusiast of. So first of all, just go back to the idea of collective surgical consciousness. It will be the day that we are capable to capture all surgical or the majority of the surgical minds in the world, um, inside a machine learning algorithm, which is capable to understand and replicate, uh, the knowledge of all surgeons based on all the experiences that had occurred, both like, uh, from errors and triumphs together. So give an example is every time I do one surgery, I learn at once. And then I have to go back home, sleep, and next day come back and do a few other surgeries. Normally, we learn also by other surgeons uh, sharing their complications in conference called morbid, morbid, morbidity conferences. But again, it's somebody describing what happened and you try to understand what happened. But imagine that if we, because the beauty of our AI is because AI can learn from multiple places at the same time. The beauty of AI is that imagine every single one of those surgeons, like me, doing their, their surgeries every day. The machine is learning from them, and at night the machine continues learning from the other surgeons that are awake doing the surgeries on a planet Earth. To the point that the, the the growth of knowledge is exponentially high, like um, um, unbelievably a way to compare of the human, uh, you know, way we learn. So so the idea would be that that would be the collective surgical consciousness. That they are going to become smarter every day by the second, right? But, but this is because w- machines are learning from humans. The machine can never be better than a human. The, it can never be better than the, what we call the ground truth. That's what training the machine. What are you describing is what we call about like a general AI or uh, which is kind of like the same, uh, you know, mental, uh, you know, intellect, conscious of a human. Or even beyond that, the super AI that we see on Blade Runner and the Marvel movies, where that then a the machine becomes in more intelligent than uh, the human being and start learning from its own mistakes. Is that possible? Conceptually, yes. Do we want to see that happen? Probably not at the moment, because we still want to be in control to keep this humanity um, inside this collective social consciousness. But we never know until we get to the particular point. I still think it's going to take many decades before we get to the uh, level of the general AI that can match our own uh, you know, uh, brain capabilities. And then from there on, maybe you can start letting the machine loose and uh, making its own decisions uh, without just giving the, the supervision to humans and see where it takes. Uh, I don't know like if we're ever going to be ready, maybe experimental settings, but there's a fantastic like, uh, question to wonder about it.
0: And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Dr. Ozanan Morellis, the Director of the Surgical Artificial Intelligence and Innovation Laboratory at Massachusetts General Hospital. That's it for our show for this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates daily n- newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or of course you can listen to us each week online or Fridays with RTE Radio and Extra. Until next time from myself Just Rhodes and from Niall Kitson thank you for listening have a great weekend. Get tech